good morning and welcome again to Grace Bible Church as we look forward again to celebrating uh, the Lord's birth this coming week. We, as Christians, we want to have uh, the right doctrine and an understanding of, of our Lord, the fact that He did come and He was born, and I think it's right and good for us to focus, to take time to focus on the birth of our Lord. But we can't forget the rest of the story, so to speak, as we focus on what the Lord did in coming as a babe in the manger, we also realize we also realize that He went to the cross. So I'm thankful this morning as you've joined us that, that we would be together this morning celebrating our Lord's birth. As uh, Phil mentioned earlier, we had our Christmas party last night and we will have our Christmas Eve service this coming Friday. As the world around us focuses, as I prayed, on Santa and his sleigh and, and the presents that come in this, the sleigh, so to speak, I want God's people to consider Jesus the manger and the cross. I want, us, I want to ensure that we, as a church, never forget the reality of Christmas, the reality of the, the Lord's birth. The reality that Christ the Sovereign Lord came to dwell in the earth that He created, or in the world that He created. I also want us to consider the truth that the babe in the manger, as I said before, went to the cross to die for our sins. He was raised from the dead and will come again to judge all mankind. In the words of uh, Augustus Toplady, who wrote some hymns of the faith, he says, Jesus Christ is the Son of God, consequently very God of very God, that He came to visit us in great humility, that He will come again in the last day to judge both the quick and the dead, and that life immortal is attained for us and shall be enjoyed by us through Him only. End quote. Let me pray, and then we'll get started. Heavenly Father, this morning I pray again for the Word being preached. Lord, that it would be clear, taught clearly, and that it would not uh, return void. We know that it won't. We trust in that promise. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be with the preacher and with the listener this morning. In Christ's name, amen. In 1955, five missionary couples in the jungle of Ecuador were planning for a chance to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with the remote and fierce Anca tribe. They had been conducting gift flights over Anca territory, attempting to create awareness of their presence by dropping packages of clothing, food, and gadgets to the natives from a small plane. Now, that story may be familiar to you, on, but I want to give you a, an aspect of it that I think really fits with our celebration of Christmas this morning. On December 23, 1955, Nate Saint and Jim Elliott flew over Aka territory and dropped a gift package of clothing, a flashlight, and other trinkets. This time the missionaries received a package back from the Akas, who tied it to a long cord the missionaries dropped from the plane. It was full of fish, peanuts, bananas, a parrot, and other meats. The gift from the Akas greatly encouraged the missionaries. Four of the five couples met that same day to plan the trip 
that would bring them face to face with the members of the Aka tribe. The group began assigning the specific duties each member would be responsible for on the mission, providing shelter in the, in the jungle, packing food and supplies, maintaining a communication link with home base, transporting those who were to go and fr- to and from the remote location, as well as other vital tasks were all necessary for the success of the mission. It was decided that the men would set up camp on, a, on the beach near the location of the Anka's main settlement. They chose January 3, 1956 for the mission they knew would need to arrive and depart before the onset of the rainy season, which would make takeoffs and landings impossible. As soon as the plans were finalized, the missionaries turned their attention to making Christmas in their, in their camp of Arajanu as much like home as possible. A meal was prepared, and a Christmas tree was made from bamboo and decorated with tinsels to celebrate the Jesus' birth. Missionary Pete Fleming still undecided was still undecided as to whether he would accompany the other men on the trip, so he, and at, during this time, waited on the, on the Lord in, in prayer continuously. From the, for the wives, it was a reflection, time of reflection and preparation for the dangers that were sure to confront their husbands on the mission. They knew that it was possible that they could all become widows as the result of this expedition. They also knew that the that God they served held first place in the lives of their husbands. The fact this fact seemed to hit home now more than ever before. December twenty third was also a day of self reflection for the men. Why were they risking their lives for the chance of making contact with these these this tribe? Nate Saint summed up their sentiments this way. If God would grant us the vision, the word sacrifice would disappear from our lips and thoughts. We would hate the things that seem now so dear to us. Our lives would suddenly be too short. We would despise time-robbing distractions and charge the enemy with all our energies in the name of Christ. May God help us to judge by the eternities that separate the Ancas from the comprehension of Christmas And him, though he was rich, yet for our sakes became so poor, or became poor, so that we, through his poverty, be made rich. End quote. Now, I relate that from a book. I think it's called, I can't remember what it's called, actually. Let me look back and see. It's written by... written by Michael and Sharon Rustin, the one-year Christian history. Uh, they, they, they relate that story. Now, most of you, most of you know that many of you know, may, maybe most of you know, that some, that some men from the Anka tribe, so these men, these missionaries, actually went to the beach and they set up, they set up camp, but men from the Anka tribe brutally murdered these missionaries on the beach near the settlement. Several years later, the Lord actually magnificently saved many of this tribe through the effort, uh, efforts of Elizabeth Elliot, Elizabeth Elliot, Jim's wife. But for today, as we look forward to Christmas, I want to focus just a few minutes on Jim's prayer. In his prayer, Jim stated that he wanted God to help him judge himself by the eternities that separate the Ancas from the comprehension of Christ, Christmas and him 
who though he was rich, yet for our sakes became poor, so that we may through his poverty be, be, be made rich. In other words, Jim Elliot recognized the future eternity for the Aka tribe. The future eternity at that moment in time, as Jim Elliot sat there on that December 23rd day, he knew the, the future eternity if something didn't change. He knew that they would suffer the wrath of the Father in hell for the rest of eternity were they to die outside of Christ. So Jim prayed that he would be judged, he would judge the worth of his life, that is, by his willingness to give everything up for the sake of taking the message of Christmas, the message of the fact that the Lord Jesus came, uh, to, was born, and was born, born to die for the, the tribes of his people, or for the, the sin of his people. Now, I want to point out the paradox here that we mustn't miss, though. Jim says, though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor. Though he was rich, yet for our sakes became poor. Beloved, this is the humility of Christmas. Emmanuel, God with us. The high king of heaven from all eternity, come down to earth to dwell with man. On that Christmas in 1955, Jim Elliott and the other missionaries believed the story of Christmas, the story of the Lord's birth with all their hearts, so much so that they were willing to die for it. I believe no other passage captures this humility of the incarnation better than Luke 2. So let's turn to Luke chapter 2. And as you do so, I want to give you a little context of Luke. Let me give you a little background of this gospel and its, and its author. The gospel of Luke and the book of Acts were written by the same person. Together with Acts, this gospel form, forms a two-volume work probably written around the same time. Luke and Acts are addressed to the same man whose name is Theophilus. The author, Luke, was a doctor, a Gentile, and a close companion of the Apostle Paul. Now, Luke wrote Luke Acts to give a sweeping and in some ways meticulous history of Christianity from its beginning. His gospel starts with the birth of Jesus, as we'll see, and it ends with Paul's imprisonment, under, the, under house arrest in Rome. According to Luke, in 1.3, he meticulously investigated the events surrounding the birth of Jesus. He says this, again in verse 3, chapter 1, verse 3, it seemed fitting to me, for me, fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus. He closely then examined Jesus' death and subsequent, the subsequent ministry of the apostles, including Paul. Now, just a cursory check of the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts will reveal Luke's meticulous nature. As such, we can rest assured that Luke carefully describes the events surrounding uh, the Lord's birth, that he didn't leave anything to chance. So with that in mind, Let's read Luke's account of the events leading up to Jesus' birth and his birth in Luke 2, 1-7. through 7. 
Luke writes, Now in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Joseph also went up from, da- from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David, in order to reg- register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. While they were there, the, the days were completed for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. That's, that's it. This is the account of the events leading up to the birth of the world's greatest king. As we read this account, one thing should strike us. One thing should strike you. In those few words, Luke describes the greatest birth in the history of the world. Considering Luke's meticulous nature, it's amazing that this account is so sparse and yet so factual. He doesn't give us any elaborate details. Considering his tendency toward the minutiae, we're left to assume the simplicity of the event itself. Luke simply presents the historical circumstances of Jesus' birth with no fanfare. The birth of Christ was unfathomably consequential. Words cannot describe the enormity of Christ's birth. Yet, Luke describes these events leading to His birth in around 104 words in the Greek and 140 words in the English. Now, obviously, Luke didn't write in the English, but he used 104 words in the Greek language to describe the birth of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, which we have then in its absolute simplicity. Now, I would argue that Luke's economy of language actually leads us, leaves us to contemplate the enormity of the events. But it also helps us recognize the humility of the events. As I said earlier, this account should bring to mind the humility of the Incarnation. Now, I would argue that this is one way that we know that the Bible didn't originate from men. I promise you that if men wrote this, and I don't mean, I mean, obviously Luke wrote it. He wrote it under the, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But if this were fully man's word, they would have made this into an elaborate story. It would be nothing like what Luke says here. This is true because men had the, a proclivity toward the flamboyance. Philip Yancey relates the following story in his book, The Jesus I Never Knew. In London, looking toward the auditorium's royal box where the queen and her family sat, I caught glimpses of the way rulers stride through the world with bodyguards, a trumpet fanfare, and a flourish of bright, bright clothes and flashing jewelry. Queen Elizabeth II had recently visited the United States and reporters delighted in spelling out the logistics involved. Her 4,000 pounds of luggage, including two outfits for every occasion, a morning outfit in case someone died, 40 pints of plasma, and, a white, and white kid leather toilet seat co- covers. I never have traveled with toilet seat covers, have you? She brought along her own hairdresser, two valets, and a host of other attendants. 
A brief visit of royalty to a foreign country can easily cost $20 million. You see, human kings and queens tend to live in opulence, do they not? That's, that's the tendency of man. Human authors tend to paint a larger-than-life picture of their lifestyles, do they not? Yancey goes on to say, by contrast, God's visit to earth took place in an animal shelter with no valets, no attendants present, nowhere to lay the newborn king but a feed trough. Indeed, the event that divided history, even our calendars, into two parts may have had more animal than human witnesses. He ends with this. A mule could have stepped on him. End quote. Do you see the difference? Do you see the difference? Do you recognize the greatness in the humility? Now, we're not going to focus on these first seven verses, but on the section from verse 8 to 14. I just wanted to use that to set up. Now, if you're interested, I preached that particular section last Christmas. But let's read the next few verses of Luke's account, starting in verse 8. In the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today, in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find all these attendants, and you will find all of these things going on, and all of this fanfare. It doesn't say that, does it? It says, this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace among men with whom he is well pleased. In these verses, Luke records seven humble yet heavenly circumstances surrounding the birth of our Lord, the Messiah, Jesus. We will see the first four this week, and then we're going to look at the next or the final four next week. So let's look at the first humble circumstance surrounding the birth of Jesus, the humble crowd. Look at verse 8. Now, we need to do a quick geography lesson. It says that in the same region, now Luke says these, these shepherds were in that same area around where Jesus was born. So they were around Bethlehem, which is located around about seven miles from the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. Just a few, just a few short miles. Maybe, maybe an hour walk or hour and 15 minute walk if you're on foot. I guess you had to be going fast. Luke describes this crowd of humble shepherds who were tending their flocks in the fields around Bethlehem. Now I want to be clear. I use the word humble. What I'm speaking of is the, the poor and downtrodden of this world. 
Shepherds represented one of the more contemptible elements of Jewish society. Shepherds were separated from society for long stretches. They were subjected in this time to suspicion and scorn. They were even uh, suspected of practicing the craft of robbers. One third century rabbi stated, there is no more despised occupation in the world than that of shepherds. The Mishnah and the Talmud listed shepherding as a despised trade along with tax collectors and gamblers. Yet the angel came to announce Jesus' birth to these lowly shepherds. What we have to understand is he didn't make this incredible proclamation to the elites of Jewish society. Think about that for a moment. In Luke one fifty two, Jesus' mother, Mary, proclaimed, He has brought down rulers from their thrones and has exalted those who were humble. Now, throughout Jesus' ministry, He continually sought the lowly of this world. He frequently called out their leaders for their rampant wickedness. I'm reminded of Simon the Pharisee in Luke 7.36. He invited Jesus to His home where a woman who, it says in the text, was a sinner, showed up. She was weeping and she was wiping her Uh, wiping his feet with her hair and her tears. Now Simon, who we find out later is Simon in the text, Simon was irked to say the least. Luke tells us in Luke 7.39, Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person person this woman is who is touching him. She is a sinner. That's how they looked at people who were lower than them. They looked down upon the lowly. Now, I don't think that we... I'm not saying that we should elevate the shepherds in any way. They were men of the flesh just like us. But God chose them to appear... God chose them for the angel to appear to them because they represented the lowly. Represented the lowly. God chose for the angel to announce Jesus' birth to lowly shepherds instead of the Jewish elites. Now, I would argue this is the point. Jesus intentionally came to that humble crowd, not to the aristocrats, so to speak. Just listen to Luke 5, 30-32. The Pharisees and their scribes began grumbling at at His disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink? with the tax collectors and sinners. And Jesus answered them and said to them, It is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Get the point. In Luke 19.10, Jesus proclaimed, For the Son of Man has come to seek and save, to save that which was lost. Beloved, let us never forget Let us never forget that Jesus came for the lowly of this world. He came for the downtrodden. God has chosen the base things and the despised things of the world, the things that are not, so that He may nullify the things that are. In the words of Charles Spurgeon, it is to the shepherds watching and keeping the night watches over their flocks that the joy of the new light is announced. To them it is revealed that the Savior is born. 
Yes, to the poor, to the hardworking, not to the rich, who have their consolation here below. It is to the poor that the light of a glorious day has shone forth amid their vigils, and the night shall be light as the day. Indeed, it is converted into day. This day, says the angel, not this night, is born to you a Savior. The night is truly past. The day is at hand. A day of days. The day of salvation of our God, Jesus Christ our Lord, who is blessed above all forevermore. End quote. Now let me get personal. Let me get personal. I, I'm not saying that being rich excludes you from heaven. It's actually your attitude towards your riches. But as you try to climb the ladder of this world, you know that, that ladder of success? As you try to climb the ladder of success, you need to remember that God regards the lowly. James warns in James 1, 19-20, Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. He says further, he further warns in James 4, 4, You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is a, is a hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. End quote. Well, quoting James. Now, again, what I'm saying is, I'm, what I'm not saying is, is that it's really your attitude toward your riches is ultimately your heart. If you're trusting in your riches, if you're, if you're making friends with the world in order to gain riches, then, then whoever wishes, if you're one of those people who are doing that, if you wish to be a friend of the world, you're making yourself an enemy of God. Now, there's another aspect of this visitation that we need to see. According to the Mishnah, Livestock around a certain or in a, within a certain circumference around Jerusalem were reserved for sacrifice in the temple. Bethlehem is within that reserved area, so these shepherds could very well have been raising sheep used for sacrifices in the temple. So the angel appeared to the men who were raising animals for sacrifice to tell them that the true and perfect sacrifice had arrived. Reminds me of the words of John the Baptist in John 1.29. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And just 33 short years later, Jesus would become the perfect sacrifice for our sins. The babe in the manger would be led to slaughter. He would shed His blood to redeem us from our sins. This little baby would purchase the church through his shed blood on the cross. He would become the sheep, chief shepherd to his people, the church of God, the body of Christ. Now, I would argue all of those realities are subtly foreshadowed by this angel's appearance to these shepherds who were watching their fields by night. Just think about it. The perfect sacrifice has arrived. Let's look at a second heavenly circumstance, humble or heavenly circumstance, circumstance surrounding our Lord's birth. The heavenly courier. 
the heavenly courier. Look at verse 9. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them. I want you to notice that Luke doesn't identify this angel, but in Luke 1, Gabriel, Gabriel was identified, who along with Michael, uh, Michael are the two named angels of God in the Bible. And so Gabriel appeared to Zacharias and to Mary. Now in Luke 2, Luke identifies him only as an angel of the Lord. But we can't rule out that it's Gabriel because in Luke 1.11, Luke uses the same designation for him. An angel of the Lord appeared to him. Now in 1.19, he specifically says it is Gabriel. Now, when the angel appeared to Mary, the text says that she was very perplexed. When the angel appeared to Zacharias, it said he was very troubled and fear gripped him. So now when the angel appears to these shepherds, the text says they were greatly frightened. Now, I think that we can be assured that when the heavenly, even a heavenly angel appears to a human, there is great, great fear. It amazes me to think of this heavenly angel meeting with these lowly shepherds. Again, what we need to see is the heavenly juxtaposed to the earthly. Can you imagine the scene? Let me tell you something. In my opinion, there's no shame in being afraid. The greatest king this world has ever seen, other than Christ, would be afraid when facing the heavenly. Especially when it is accompanied by the heavenly sea. That is, the heavenly lights. Look back at your verse, text in verse 9. It says, The glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. The text says, The glory of the Lord. Now, I use the letter in C in this point to represent light, of course, the speed of light, uh, the, re- the symbol representing the speed of light. These shepherds, but the shepherds may have been familiar with the references to the glory of the Lord from Scripture, but no, but one can be certain that they had never actually experienced it. See, very few have experienced the divine, even indirectly. The Bible says no one has ever seen God directly because man can't see His face and live. His glory is too great. But there have been instances where God allowed men to witness His glory. God's glory is a a manifestation then of His presence among His people. Exodus 24, 17, it says, "...to the eyes of the sons of Israel, the appearance of the glory of God was like a consuming fire upon the mountaintop." Later in the New Testament, Jesus will manifest God's glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. Matthew tells us that Jesus was transfigured before them, and it says in Matthew 17:2, His face shone like the sun, and His garment, garments became white as light. In Acts chapter 9, Saul was traveling on the road to Damascus, and a light from heaven flashed all around him. Jesus appeared to him in that light. Later in Acts 26.13, Paul described the light as brighter than the sun. Now, this is the light of God's glory. 
And we must be aware then of the holiness of God. This angel came to announce that one who possesses an, inf- possesses an infinitely greater glory than him, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, had arrived. I mean, understand, we're talking about an angel here. Can you imagine? I mean, we see the glory of the Lord. Can you imagine the presence of God? In the words of Mike Riccardi, when God manifests His presence amidst His people, that manifestation is what we know as His Shekinah glory. It's the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire, the smoke that fills the tabernacle and so on. Well, that very glory belongs to Jesus from all eternity. End quote. We saw this earlier. John proclaimed in John 1.14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten full of, or from the Father, full of grace and truth. In John 17.5, Jesus prays, Now, Father, glorify me together with Yourself with the glory which I had with You before the, before the world was. And John 12, John quotes Isaiah 6.3, which records... Isaiah's vision of the Lord. In that passage in Isaiah 6.3, the angels were calling out to one another saying, uh, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. John says in John 14.21, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, John 12.41, he says, These things Isaiah said because he saw His glory and he spoke of Him. In other words, John says that Isaiah spoke of the Lord Jesus Christ. The baby in the manger is the eternal God from all eternity. Isaiah's amazing vision of the glory of Yahweh is the glory of God the Son. Mike Riccardi says, Jesus Christ is not merely a man. He is not just a good teacher. Or a great prophet. He's not merely godlike or a god among many gods. He is not the first created being or the highest class of angel. He is God Himself, God of very God. Before the world was, He was eternally existing in the very nature of God, in the very essence of God, in the very glory of God. End quote. Here's the point as we consider the humility of Christmas, the humility of Christmas, we must never forget that that baby in the manger was none other than the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He was God, very God. And He never became any less than that. We mustn't overlook that while in His first advent He came to, uh, to us as our Savior, He will return in all His glory. In the words of John Chrysostom, there are two advents of Christ, that which has been and that which is to be. And the two are not for the same purpose. The first came to pass not that He might search into our actions, but that He might pardon. The object of the second will be not to pardon, but to judge. End quote. This is what makes the humility of Christmas so great. As Isaiah cried out in Isaiah 6, 5, 
Then I said, woe is me, for I am ruined. Do you know why he was ruined? Because he had witnessed the glory of God. He says, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. See, we are indeed a sinful people separated from the holiness of God. We need redemption. We are in need of a Savior. And God sending His very own Son, God has provided that answer. Which brings us to the humble communication. The humble communication. Look back at your text in Luke 2, verses 10 and 11. It says, But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Now church, that is a packed statement. In these verses, the angel reveals that Jesus, the baby in the manger, is Christ the Lord. In other words, He is a divine Savior. Christ is the Greek word for Messiah. And so you need to understand that we need to recognize that the Old Testament authors had prophesied from the beginning of a Messiah who would take away the sins of the world and restore mankind to, the, to a right relationship with God. From the time of Adam and Eve all the way to Noah, from Abraham to Joseph, from Moses to David, from the prophets all the way to John the Baptist, through the ups and downs of Israel, God had maintained a faithful remnant who expected this Redeemer. Moses wrote of this coming one, the seed of the, of, of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. He even prophesied that God would raise up a prophet like him from among the people that they should listen to. That's Deuteronomy 18.15. God revealed to David that, that when his days were complete, that when David's days were complete, and when he lied down with his father, uh, fathers, he would raise up, God would raise up a descendant after him that, who would come forth from him and, and it would be a, his, his kingdom would be established forever, eternally. 2 Samuel 7.12 Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah 9.6 For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. The prophet Micah proclaimed that one will go forth from me to be ruler in Israel, his goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Just before Jesus' ministry was to begin, John the Baptist said, I baptize you in water, but among you stands one whom you do not know. It is he who comes after me, the thong of whose sandal I am unworthy to untie. Now look back at your text in 2.11, Luke 2.11. The angel says that Jesus is Christ the Lord. In other words, He is the Lord. This is a, a divine title. He is a divine Messiah. The angel revealed that He is Yahweh. Now, what we have to see is, is that was unexpected by many. 
They didn't understand that. They didn't expect a divine Messiah. The baby in the manger was not only the, the divine, or not only the Messiah, the one that they were expecting, but he is the sovereign Lord of all creation. I want you to notice something in verse 10. He says, I, I bring you, I bring you good news of great joy. You see, the coming of this baby is the good news that brings great joy. Now, church, this is the gospel. The gospel which brings great joy. In this verse, the angel brings this good news, this good news of this baby to the shepherds, yet it will be for all the people. <clears throat> now, most likely, in this specific passage, he's referring to Israel. But in Luke's gospel, and we can't miss the fact that Luke is a Gentile, by the way. In, in Luke's gospel and in Acts, he makes it clear that the gospel is for the Jews and for the Gentiles, for all the peoples. In Matthew 28, Jesus made it clear that his followers were to make disciples of all the nations. Now, I call this the humble communication. But it could just as easily have been called the heavenly communication the humble baby lying in the manger is the divine christ the son of god the savior of the world he is god very god just listen to charles spurgeon jesus Nazareth, jesus of nazareth is god he who is conceived in the womb of the virgin and born in Bethlehem's manger, manger is now and always was God over all, blessed forever. There is no gospel if he is not God. It is, not, it is no news to me to tell me that a great prophet is born. There have been great prophets before, but the world has never been redeemed from evil by mere testimony to the truth and never will be. Tell me, that God is born, that God Himself has espoused our nature and taken it into union with Himself, that the bells, then the bells of my heart ring merry peals, for now I come to God since God has come to me. End quote. Christ the Lord has come to earth, to the earth He created. He was born into this world, the perfect Lamb who came to take away the sins of the world. This baby is fully God from time eternal become fully man. The God-man. The Word become flesh. The one who would live a perfect life revealing the glory of the Father. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. His incarnation, His coming in flesh humbly communicates to us that God has provided a Savior in His own Son, Christ the Lord. Now we'll see this more fully next week, but for now I want to leave you with the words of the Apostle Paul. We read this earlier. Philippians 2, if you want to turn there. Philippians 2, starting in verse 5. Paul writes, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, 
but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Beloved, these verses capture the story of Christmas. God became man. He was born into the world that He made. He, as I've said over and over, is God, very God, yet He emptied Himself. He willingly renounced or set aside His divine privileges. He willingly gave up His heavenly glory to be made in the likeness of men. As I said earlier, Luke 2.12, this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby. A baby. Just imagine for a moment the humanity of that scene. In so many ways, he was just an ordinary baby. He needed to be wrapped. He needed his mother's love. Yet, Yet, He was the Son of God. He is the Son of God. The Son of Man who came to seek and save the lost. Just listen to Paul's words in Philippians 2.8. Being found in appearance as a man, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Why did He do, why did he do this? He did it to take upon Himself the sins of the world and to suffer the wrath of the Father. He did so that, so that sinners like you and I could be redeemed through His shed blood. It's Ephesians 1.7 In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. In His first coming He has offered us salvation in His name. Through His sacrifice on the cross, we can have His righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. You see, in the humility of that first advent, Jesus offers hope to all mankind. He offers hope to you if you only believe. Again, listen to the words of Paul in Philippians 2.9. For this reason also, God highly exalted Him. So God highly exalted Him through His humility and bestowed on Him the name which is above every name. Bestowed on Him the name which is above every name. And He goes on to say, some reason my notes are cut off. That at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And that every tongue will confess Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Do you remember? What did we see? What did the angel say? Christ the Lord. Christ the Lord. Paul is saying that every tongue will confess, confess that Jesus Christ is what? Lord. 
The question is whether you will do that now, willingly. Don't wait. Because that baby that was born in a manger that came to die is coming again. And He's coming in all His glory. And He will judge. And those not found in Christ will be thrown in the lake of fire. And that's the truth of Christmas. It's humility of Christmas and the glory of Christmas, is it not? Heavenly Father, we thank You this morning. As we have explored the humility and the glory The humility juxtaposed with the glory. We as men think that earthly, fleshly things, and we glorify those things. Yet, Paul writes, have this attitude in yourselves, this attitude of humility. Father, it is to the lowly that the angel appeared. May we be lowly in heart. May we look not to our own strength, not to our own status, not to what we have in this world. May we do away with those things. May we do away with those things. Put them away. And may we trust in Christ alone. As the song we sing so often says, in Christ alone, my hope is found. Christ alone. May I be found in Christ alone. I pray that same thing for every man, woman, and child sitting in this room or within hearing of my voice. In Christ's name, amen.